Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. Uh, Tonight we're going to look at Psalm 45 together. And Psalm 45 is interesting because it's rather unique to the book of Psalms and it's actually a royal wedding song. And because it's unique in its genre, it's not going to fit quite with the pattern that Pastor Jason's been taking us through where we walk from fear to faith. Instead, it's going to tell a different story. And as we look at the psalm in terms of background, um, scholars have tried to isolate this. They want to know who wrote it. Was it for a specific wedding? Was it for... uh, just in general use in the royal household, and frankly, they don't know. So in order to be faithful to the text, we can consider it just a uh, general song used uh, in the context of a royal wedding. It should be fun to go through because it's a unique context, and let's face it, everybody loves a good wedding, right? Particularly a royal wedding. We don't get to experience this in this country, but I know in the past few years we've experienced some weddings uh, that have taken place in Britain where they were royal affairs. And what I remember most is that uh, when I was living in Florida in particular, uh, my friends, as soon as the news of these weddings came out, they started planning their parties like it was the Super Bowl. So they would determine, okay, well, it's going to be on this date, so we got to mark that out, make sure we're off work that day. we got to lay out our proper snacks and tea and whatever other themed things they were going to do. And the big thing was they had to make sure they had plastic tiaras because they had to wear that while they were watching. For the ladies, of course. None of my male friends wore the tiaras. But, you know, it's a big to-do. People love royal weddings. They're willing to get up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning in order to start with the pre-wedding show. And then as they're watching the pre-wedding show, that goes into the ceremony. And then as they go throughout the day, it goes from the ceremony to the post-wedding show. So they've seen everybody's opinion on what they thought people were going to wear. They saw everybody's opinion on what family drama took place or who struck a good pose in front of the cameras and all those good things. But the main question when we see people act like that is why? Like, why would you get up at three or four o'clock in the morning to watch a wedding that's not yours? And the reason is that when we look at royal weddings, there's something fascinating about them, right? There's something significant taking place. So we're willing to do strange things in order to even tacitly appear like we're taking a part in that, right? And in the day that this psalm was written in Psalm 45, royal weddings had great meaning because it wasn't just about the joyous occasion and it wasn't just about the pomp and circumstance. There were often lots of underlying things that were a part of that, right? There were political implications. There were security implications. There were military implications. And because of that, 
the writer of this psalm starts off and he says, I'm excited and this is a joyous occasion, but this is also serious business. And we've got to pay attention to what the psalmist says. So, if you will, take your copy of God's Word. I'll be reading out of the King James Version tonight as we read Psalm 45 and read along with me. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king, and my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore, God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of thy kingdom is the right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All these garments smell, or all thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. And kings' daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider, and incline thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. And the daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. And the king's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold, and she shall be brought unto the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, be her, her, the virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. And with gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children, whom thou mayest make princes in all the earth. And I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. And therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. So first look with me at the description of this royal groom that the psalmist gives us. And this comes to us in verses 2 through 9 as he begins to describe this royal groom. And he begins by talking about his lips. And this is not a physical description. He's not like, bam, your feature is your lips. What he's talking about is the fact that uh, he speaks grace and kindness to his people. He is wise in his ruler in the words that he speaks to them. And not only is he a, uh, a wise person of royal character, but he is also a mighty warrior. He has a strong sword and he has sharp arrows and he's a great military leader. But more than that, he fights for the right reasons. He fights for truth and for justice. And because of that, because his uh, motives are pure, when he fights and defeats his enemies, it is right and just that they are submitted to him. So he is a great warrior and he's a great speaker. And as the psalmist goes on for the remainder of this section, he talks about how his kingdom is going to last forever. How he's been anointed with oil and how he's going to experience wealth. So what the psalmist is trying to communicate that this is truly a royal groom and someone worthy to be brought to the altar this day. 
But beyond that, he goes on and he begins to talk about the bride. So look with me at the character of the bride and the charge of the bride that he gives to her in verses 10 through 15. And he talks about the bride's character as well. And she is noble. She is somebody worthy. She is somebody who uh, has been greatly adorned to be brought into uh, the royal house through this marriage. She's someone who is envied. It talks about uh, that Tyre will be there. And when the Bible speaks of Tyre, Tyre is a symbol of great commercial wealth and trade wealth. So this would be equivalent in our day of saying something like Silicon Valley will come or Wall Street will come and they will seek your favor and they'll have gifts for you. So she's someone that people want to be drawn to. But it's not because of her, ultimately. It's because she's being drawn into the royal house. And there's also a warning and a charge that he gives to the bride. Uh, when he looks in verse 10, he talks about how um, she should forget her own people and forget her father's house. And she should fully become a part of her new family. And this is something that we demonstrate even in our own weddings. I remember when Heather and I were married, this is symbolized when her father brings her down the aisle and gives her away to me. And what that is, is it's a symbol that I am stepping out of my household and she is stepping out of her household. And then we are cleaving together to become a new family unit in the way that God instituted marriage. And that's an important step because we become a new family unit under God's lordship. And it's the way it's designed. It's the way that God wants his purposes to be carried out in the world uh, through that institution. Now, it's not that once we break away from our families, we hate our families. We still desire to know them. We still desire to be in relationship with them. But there's something unique that has taken place before the Lord and before the people that love us, right? Because we've been cleaved together. And as the poet ends this psalm, he talks about uh, the groom again. And he recharges the groom in 16 and 17 and talks about how this marriage is ultimately meant for a bigger purpose. It's meant not just for them and not just for the moment and not just for um, what's taking place, but it's also meant to produce, right? They want a fruitful marriage that's going to produce sons and daughters. Because in a state that's controlled by a monarchy, princes and princesses are the coin of the realm in a lot of ways. Particularly in this time, when you were able to have princes, that meant that there would be a continuation of the family line. And it meant safety and security for the people because they knew that there was a son coming along. And today in America, as a democracy, we don't experience this much. But in other forms of government in other parts of the world where there are still monarchies, a lot of times if you want to look at what the future is going to hold or how you plan, you don't necessarily look at who's on the throne now. You look at their sons <laughs> and they say, how's he going to act? Is he someone honorable? Is he someone we can do business with? So it's important, this fruit of the marriage. So... We get to the end of this psalm and you say, all right, Pastor Daniel, that was nice. It was a wedding song. Everybody's happy. We enjoy weddings. It's been a great night. Maybe you should quit while you're ahead. Mm -hmm. But when we look at a psalm like this, 
we from our position have to say, is God saying something deeper here? Is this just a wedding song that's given to us rightly in Scripture because there's something God wants us to get out of it? Or is He giving us a message that has greater significance from where we stand in redemptive history? You see, when we look at this wedding psalm, um, we know that it was written by the author in a particular context with a particular meaning. Because the texts of Scripture have meaning. And that meaning never changes. But the significance of the passage can change based off the perspective onto which we're looking at it. So even, we know this from Scripture, when we look at Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus, Jesus has resurrected and He begins to walk along the road with some of His disciples. And they don't recognize Him immediately. And they're talking about all the things that have taken place. And as Jesus walks with them, He begins to ask them, well, why are y'all so agitated? Like, what's been going on in Jerusalem? And they are just flabbergasted that he has no idea what's been taking place. And they begin to tell him this story and they say, well, there was this guy and his name was Jesus and he claimed to be the son of God. And we thought he was going to set up a kingdom, but then the rulers killed him. And now some of the disciples are saying that he raised from the dead and we don't know how to deal with this. And they still don't recognize Jesus yet. But Jesus says, haven't you read about all these things beforehand? And they're like, well, maybe. And then Jesus takes them through Scripture and He says, no, all this is about Me. And He starts with Moses and He talks to the prophets and He says, all this is written about Me coming. This is written about this time. And throughout the conversation at one point they do recognize who He is and Jesus goes away. But from Luke 24, we know that the early church began to look back at these Old Testament Scriptures and read them in light of Christ who had come. So the meaning of the text doesn't change, but now you're able to look through it or look at it through Christ who has come. And you look back at a wedding psalm like this and you realize that there's something much deeper going on. So when we talk about this royal groom... There's some interesting details that the psalmist gives us. You know, there's the pretty standard stuff about like, yeah, he's a good warrior and he speaks about great things, but he's a specific type of warrior. He's a warrior that fights for truth and justice. He's a warrior that rightly conquers people because he is the king. But even further, when we get down in verses 6 and 7, we read things that cannot apply to an earthly king. And in fact, these same verses are quoted by the writer of Hebrews in reference to Christ later on in the New Testament. So when we look at 6 and 7, it says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thy love righteousness and hate wickedness. And therefore, God, thy God hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows. So when Hebrews quotes these verses, they look through Christ and say, this is a witness to Him coming. The psalmist is calling Him God. The psalmist is saying His kingdom is going to last forever. He is a righteous and worthy King. Christ is the King. He is the Messiah that they have waited on. And now when the writer of Hebrews uses these verses, he's telling the Jewish people that have been dispersed, your Messiah has come. And here's the proof of it. It's in the Scriptures. Go back to Psalm 45 and see what God has to say about him. 
So the groom is the righteous King Jesus. This is the fulfillment of what God tells David in 2 Samuel as well, that there's going to be a Davidic king that rules forever and rules righteously and is savior of the people. So if the royal groom in fact talks about Jesus, now we have to look at the bride character that's being described here. Are there things here that may refer to the bride of the true royal groom, Jesus, which is the church? And all of us are part of the church. All the gathered body of believers throughout the world are part of the church. And as we look back at the bride's description, there are things that we can take from it. That in fact, he's describing the bride of Christ here. One thing in particular, when we look at this marriage example, marriage is one of the things that they use in the New Testament in particular to talk about our relationship as a church to Jesus. That's a common metaphor that Paul uses and some of the other disciples. So as we look at what this marriage is to look like, we think about this charge again that the psalmist gives the bride to leave her former allegiances, to leave her father's house and to come to the royal, uh, the royal wedding and join the uh, groom's household. And again, that's the same way Christ calls us out, right? We are to completely repent of formally who we are Right. Our former allegiances, our former desires, our former things that keep us lost and separated from Christ. And through repentance and faith and confession, we become part of Christ's family because not only are we justified through Christ and not only are we sanctified through the Holy Spirit and brought into right relationship with God, the father, we are also adopted into his family. To live forever as co-heirs like Paul talks about. So from this adoption and from this marriage, we look again at what the psalmist has to say at the end of Psalm 45. Because he talks about production. So how are we to reconcile this with this new significance we put on the text by the writers of Scripture putting this significance here? See, when we think about production and marriage, we think about regular sons and daughters. And those are wonderful things. I love being father to Graceland Bell. It's a joyous, joyous thing, even when she is pitching a fit and rolling all over the floor. I know y'all cannot imagine having seen, seen her, but she does have desires and she wants to do things that she's not supposed to. And her reaction to no right now is lay back in the floor and scream and kick my feet. Not very dangerous because she's really tiny, but if we let that continue, it could get really dangerous, right? I digress. Anyway, as we're talking about these sons and daughters, most marriages are meant to produce. Now, we do live in a broken world, and there are people that struggle with this aspect of marriage, and I've had friends that have gone through it, and this can be a dark road to walk through, and this can be something that really strains relationships. But by the grace of God, as part of His family and part of the Bride of Christ, we are all called to be uh, spiritual multipliers. We can all participate in this spiritual multiplication that's part of the church. We are called to create spiritual sons and daughters, to mentor those that are younger than us, to be the main disciplers in our households as grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles, to look for, um, you know, 
men that have walked with Christ for a long time, looking for younger men and fathers and helping them and ladies likewise. We are called to be multiplying disciples. And this is something that I talk about a lot with the students as well. We're called to be able to share our faith well. And we're called to be able to mentor people to spiritually, spiritual maturity. So in thinking about this, we realize that, yes, this is a great royal wedding song. But there is so much spiritual death, depth that's taking place here. And Christ is calling us to call people to ultimate hope. Because we live in an age that deals with fear and anxiety and depression and all the things that the world tells us will meet all those needs are ultimately unsatisfying and some of them are very dangerous. So as believers, we have the right answer for ultimate hope. And we can come alongside people that are going through some of these emotions and help them understand that they were made to be in relationship with Christ to be in relationship with their creator. But the problem is they're separated by sin and that they need Jesus through faith and repentance. And by that, they can return to ultimate hope. And we look at this, how it plays out in a marriage. Marriages were meant to be beacons to point people to this ultimate hope. Because when we're in marriages, you're dealing with two imperfect people, right? You're dealing with two people who are scarred by sin, but... In the Christian context, you're dealing with people who have placed themselves under the lordship of Christ. So now you've got two people who are imperfect, both under Christ's lordship, who have put their relationship under Christ's lordship. And when they deal with things of life, when they deal with worries, when they make decisions, when they parent, and when they sacrificially love each other, that is a beacon to the world because that's not what they see normally. So when we look at a psalm like this and we look at its deeper significance, I encourage you to think about, as we have ultimate hope in Christ, begin to ponder those things about people around us, people in our families, people we see on a daily basis, people at work, people that God puts as a burden in our hearts that need to know His ultimate hope. As we think about those things, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, and we thank you that you give us a revelation of yourself through your word, and that its depth continues and continues. We praise you that your spirit has guarded your word and allows us to put faith in it. Father, I pray over each one of us here as we walk with you, that we would walk differently in this world, and we would point people to the hope we have in you. I pray even now that you'd place people on our hearts, people that need to know you and that you would make us uh, good witnesses to them. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.